Ukaidi, and welcome to the second episode of the Yonsei, a Nikkei podcast. I'm Hiro from Nikkei Rising, and as part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage series, we'll be bringing you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. Hi, I'm Michelle, also with Nikkei Rising. Together with Hiro, we'll be co hosting today's episode titled Only What You Can Carry. With our guests, we'll explore the years following up to the war along with the forced removal. Through this conversation, we hope to better understand how today's generation of Nikkei are affected by the stories of their Issei and Nisei ancestors. Welcome again to the Yonsei. and during this time, I believe most of my family were in California. My Japanese grandfather, Anisei, lived in San Francisco, Japantown, and his family owned Mikado Hotel Restaurant. My Japanese grandmother, also Anisei, lived in Walnut Grove at the time, where her family owned a mercantile store. Even though my grandparents were only about eight or nine years old at the time, they do remember feeling afraid during this pre forced removal period. My grandma has told me stories about having to stay home and draw the shades when people outside the neighborhood came to throw rocks or even shoot at their windows. The discrimination that Michelle's Nisei grandparents experienced was not an uncommon occurrence. As anti Asian sentiments were on the rise during the early 1900s, Japanese Americans were repeatedly met with discriminatory pieces of legislation that threatened their success in America. My first guest today is Kendall Takeshita. Kendall is a Gosei from Washington that is currently studying political science and data science at McAllister College. Not only is he a student, but he also serves as the youth representative for the JACL's Midwest District. Welcome to the Yonsei, Kendall. Thank you, Hiro and Michelle, for having me on today. I'm excited to share my story with everyone. Our next guest is Nina Nakao, a Yonsei who works in the education unit at the Japanese American National Museum in Little Tokyo, LA. She grew up in Berkeley, California. She also holds a bachelor's degree in political science from Vassar College. Welcome to the Onsei, Nina. Hi, thank you so much. To begin our conversation with y'all, we'd like to hear a little bit about each of your family's settlement story and what it was like for them immediately following the passing executive order 9066. Kendall, why don't you start off for us? Yeah, of course. Well, my grandmother, Yumiko, was around three to four years old when she was first interned in Amachi, Colorado, along with her family. Previously, her family was living in Winters, California, where her father grew apricots for a living. She recalls her personal experiences times of joy as she played with Japanese American kids to forget the hardships of the camp. However, Her father was taken away to North Dakota on suspicions of being a Japanese spy. Cramped shacks, dirty bathrooms, and hordes of rattlesnakes were my grandma's most prominent memories of her time at the camp. As for my grandfather, he was actually born after the war, so he never experienced the internment camp. His family grew up in Kent, Washington, and were also farmers before being interned at Minidoka. He grew up migrating around the Idaho area from Parma to Payette, where there was a small population of Japanese Americans. Oftentimes, many of the Japanese Americans in the area were very depressed, so incidents like drowning accidents, car crashes, and suicides were not uncommon in Idaho. What he remembers most about these times is that his parents worked tirelessly on the farm and never really told him about their time in the camps. That's great. And Mina, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your story as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm biracial and my father is the Japanese American one. Um, both of his parents were born and mostly lived their whole lives in Hawaii. So my grandfather, who's also named Hiro, um, he grew up in Hilo and my grandmother was born and, and still resides in Honolulu. So, um, both of my great grandparents on both sides of my family, my, my mother's and my father's immigrated to the United States in, in the year 1901. So my mother's side who were Italian Americans were coming to Ellis Island at the same side as my father's family was coming over to the territory of Hawaii. Um, but because of this, they obviously weren't incarcerated during World War II. They were living in Hawaii um, during the 1940s. So they would have experienced things like martial law and um, I'm sure heightened racial tensions, but they were both always like extremely adamant that they hadn't experienced the exclusion and incarceration and that they felt very uncomfortable kind of comparing themselves to other Japanese Americans who had gone through the wartime, this wartime experience. Um, so I don't know nearly as much as Kendall does, but I do know that my grandfather registered for the draft in early February of 1942. So it would have been um, not long after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and just days before the signing of executive order 9066. So although he never ended up leaving Hawaii for his military service, he, I must imagine that this would have been like an incredibly stressful time to be a, a young man of military age in Hawaii. Right. Right. Well, thank you to the both of you for sharing your family stories. That being said, I think we're going to go ahead and transition to some questions for the both of y'all. Nina, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question about your story and how it affects you. Being that your grandparents lived in Hawaii at the time, they were probably met with different forms of discrimination, like you said, than the Nikkei on the mainland. Do you feel that has affected your identity as a Nikkei in any way? Um, Definitely. I think that there's all these kind of like minutiae things that affect us. My grandparents like later lived for a lot of their, their life and, and my dad's life in Japan. So I think that that became a, like a large part of my family's story and brought us kind of closer to this heritage in many ways. Um, but for the last few years, I've been like really struck and thinking about this quote that comes from the author and professor David Ang. Um, he's a professor of Asian American studies in English. And he says um, this really beautiful quote that says, the mother has history, but no memory. And the daughter has memory, but no history. And I think that that really has struck a chord with me as like, I've grown up in very Japanese American communities and then, um, and then gotten very involved in Japanese American communities through my personal life and my work. And so it kind of like just touches on this eternal longing that so many of us, no matter like the specifics of these stories that we all know pieces of from our, our ancestors camp experiences. It's like this longing that we have to understand and like kind of negotiate this, this memory that we're all trying to grapple with. And it's definitely interesting how we all kind of come together and try to understand our histories and, and kind of meet each other through these different experiences. Like Nina and I met through the Nikkei community internship a couple of years ago. And there's other, you know, um, 
opportunities like Kakahashi trips and uh, that's where Hiro and I met. So it's very cool to see, you know, how that longing for, for learning about history and, and creating those memories is really still prevalent and, you know, brings us together. Yeah, definitely. And Kendall, I have a, a question for you. Um, maybe just if you had any particular stories or anecdotes about your family's pre-war experience that maybe stand out to you. Yeah, well, actually, we didn't know about this until maybe a few years ago, but my great-grandfather was possibly one of the no-no boys because while his family was interned at Minidoka, he was at Tule Lake. And from what I remember, he was a prominent community member in the Kent, Washington area. So at that point, I had some mixed feelings, especially when I went to the JACL convention last year, and there was a resolution to write an apology to the No-No Boys. And though we didn't have the um, resolution to be voted as an apology to the No-No Boys, I finally felt relieved after so many years, after kind of having this conflict of no information about my family. And now I can finally have some closure, so... I can definitely understand, like, feeling that, like, conflict within yourself, especially learning something like that at a later stage in your life and kind of having this idea in your head, right, that your family had lived a certain lifestyle and did these certain things and to have something monumental like finding out that your grandfather, right, might be a no-no boy. It's definitely a surprise. I'm sure you had to, like, learn to have your identity built off of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, there was a lot of people at the JACL convention who were also opposed to not write or opposed to write an apology to the no, no boys because, Oh, they felt this commitment to being a soldier for the Americans. But at the same time, like I feel as if it was kind of confusing why everyone on the same side was fighting against each other. You know, no one was getting recognized and either way, the no-no boys were still very much ostracized from the Japanese American community until very, very recently. And do you feel like that affects your identity in any way? Like, how does it make you feel as a descendant? I think it makes me feel very proud of my great-grandfather because he felt as if something was wrong with the situation and he stood up for what he believed in. And truly that's just a reminder to not only me, but to all uh, future Japanese American Japanese Americans that, you know, when we see something wrong or we feel something that there's an injustice in the system, we have the power to stand up protest and vote on new legislation it's really cool because um, those are some of the topics that are going to come up in later episodes. So it'll be really interesting to see others' opinions on those topics as well. Absolutely. And the story of Japanese Americans is we can't tell it without thinking about the the fact that so many of our grandparents that um, were citizens of the United States. And it's a story about how minorities in the United States have not been unilaterally given the civil liberties that they were promised as as citizens and as residents of the United States for for the Issei ancestors. So it's such an important story to tell now. And Nina, do you think that your experience working at Genom and kind of 
educating other people on um, these issues and this history has kind of connected you more to your history or to that of the Japanese American community? Absolutely. Um, because I get to work with a lot of teachers that bring their schools and their classrooms to visit the museum. Um, one thing that we always are noticing is how teachers use the Japanese American story as a tool for talking about um, present day current events and drawing parallels that help their students understand history better um, and understand their place in our society. And I think that that's been really impactful. I also get to work with really closely with our volunteers. And so when I get to have these conversations with people who've had firsthand experiences and are really emotionally open about those experiences, um, I never want to take those conversations for granted. And because so many of our living survivors now were children during the war, they have this like really conflicting view of their time in camp. So it wasn't maybe the most painful experience for them because the hardest thing that they dealt with was leaving behind a baseball bat or a beloved pet. But they understand that this loss and this um, trauma was so much harder for their parents um, who were losing their homes and their jobs and their cars and everything they had worked for. So it's finding that, that balance. And I think that that's been something that's, helps me understand um, how my my grandmother deals with talking about it with me and how it always is easier to kind of pass it off onto somebody else, I guess. Um, yeah, but I, I've also like learned a lot about just how to open up these conversations. And like we have the Hirosaki National Resource Center at the museum as well. And it's become a really good way for me to have these conversations with my grandmother because I can ask her like very concrete questions about her life based on research I've done about it. So I asked her about a trip that her parents took her on to Japan when she was 13 years old, um, right before the start of the war. And her response was, yeah, I was there. I remember. And so it, it becomes like this really concrete way of like understanding and basing like how I want to talk to her about it. Well, definitely. Um, Nina, if I can ask you a question with all the conversations that you see like occur at the museum and like the conversations that you have had with your own relatives, I guess on the Yonsei podcast, we, we really encourage our listeners to have these conversations with their relatives. If their relatives are open to explaining this history that they went through, what would you say is one of the best ways, in your opinion, to start some of these conversations with relatives? Oh, definitely. I, I was listening to the, the first episode, and I was really struck by the idea of just asking them really simple questions about what foods they remember eating or um, like kind of some of these happier memories. Um, I think that people are so excited to revisit things like the clubs that they might have joined or the scouting troops um, and, or the, the dance lessons that they had or the arts and crafts that they participated in. And there are like a lot of, for the people who are this Nisei generation, a lot of happy memories. Um, but I definitely also think that like finding research, finding ways to open the conversation that's like, look, I, I put in my time, I went to the museum and I, printed out these doc, these records of from the WRA or this, this record that was on microfiche like 
kind of shows your grandparents like, Hey, I really do care. I really do want to have this conversation and I want to learn from you. That's great. I think that's a a great strategy for trying to open up those conversations, especially now with all the current events that are happening. It's definitely a great time before we, you know, lose some of our niece or even more um, and, and lose pe- the people that were actually there when it happened. So it's, uh, I definitely um, encourage you know, everyone who, who can to, to participate in those conversations and, and try to speak about it um, just within your communities or find other, you know, really excited and enthusiastic Nisei or sorry, Yonsei and Gosei to, to talk about those issues with too, because a lot of them, you know, still, still want to learn and, and it's an important part of growing up as a Japanese American for sure. So Kendall, have you had any of those conversations with your grandparents or how did you learn about your family's pre-war experience and forced removal? Um, really just the majority of what I learned about our family's pre-war experience came from my grandfather, who was actually a very enthusiastic researcher about kind of where our family was from, what we did, and how we lived our lives. So it was really interesting to talk to him. He had lots of photographs, lots of texts and books written from who knows when, but really it was truly an impressive thing to see how much of our family history that my grandfather had saved just to pass it on to us. Well, and did that make you see your family in a different light or how did that make you feel? How did learning about all of that make you feel? After seeing what they had been through for myself, I respect my grandparents even more because they, even during those depressing times, they persevered through everything to become excellent role models. So I just see them as someone who has been through life and came back just to share the experiences so that I can live a better one. Would you say that with how much your grandfather is dedicated to like preserving this history, did that kind of inspire you to get involved in the community and also to push for this preservation of this experience and story? Oh yeah, absolutely. After learning about our family history, we decided to take a trip to the Minidoka pilgrimage last year. And I was there with uh, Yoko and Hana and Johnny among the Nikkei Rising Board. And really that experience opened my eyes because seeing the dirt pass in the barracks and the scorching sun made me feel even a small fraction of the emotion and pain that my ancestors went through during World War II. And just something like that is truly a life-changing experience for me. And yes, that is pretty much the reason why I am involved in more Japanese American preservation and the JACL as well. Yeah. Well, so thank you so much for both sharing those experiences. Just, we wanted to ask a final question just about how your family's pre-war or forced removal experience, how has that impacted the way that you understand the U S and your place in it? And maybe Nina, you could. Okay. If you could. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's learning from this history and understanding that, we are lucky enough to live in a, in just a different era in a time that we've witnessed civil rights change and we know that they can change more and become better. So it's using this history to understand and help shape our society and our democracy and be someone who always is going to stand up for others and, and helping it 
become part of this like community wide imperative that everybody who, um, who knows this painful chapter of American history, who like, who identifies as part of this Nikkei community sees it as on all of us to use this story in order to help teach in order to help learn and understand ourselves and protect the civil liberties for everybody. Kendall, would you like to, to add on that? Yeah, of course. Well, it makes me feel that despite having so many opportunities to thrive in the U S there's so many issues that still need to be addressed. And it is not only an issue as part of the Japanese Americans. I mean, this issue of racial injustice and this social systemic racism is truly something that can be applied to all platforms, such as the murder of George Floyd and the imprisonment of children at the southern border. I think that our place as a generation is to make better lives for the next generation. Because even though it may seem okay to maintain the status quo, we can't continue to follow in the footsteps of our ancestors. So that's why I feel that it's important to also share what we've been through, but to also listen to what other people have been through as well. And together we can take small steps forward to better change. And I feel like as we attempt to preserve this history and recognize it and educate the public more about the similarities and intersectionality between what has happened before and what's happening today, I I hope that as people begin to learn more about that and acknowledge it, we are able to make those changes and step towards a better path within the American story. But yeah, that being said, I think we should go ahead and thank them, right? Right, absolutely. Thank you both, uh, Kendall and Nina, so much for sharing your time with us. It's been really great hearing your reflections on your grandparents and great-grandparents' experiences and just listening to your continued desire to understand and educate others about this period of time. Yeah, we're both very thankful that you were able to come onto the show with us and be able to have this discussion about your family's pre-war and forced removal experiences. Oh my gosh, thank you guys so much. It's it's really been a pleasure and it's I'm feeling very lucky to have the Tadaima experience and get to all come together in this weird virtual unifying way. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Once again, I mean, this Tadaima virtual pilgrimage is such a great idea since everyone's stuck in their homes nowadays. So I guess I'm looking forward to hearing the other episodes of the Yonsei podcast as well. Yeah, be sure to join us for the next week's episode, An American Nightmare, where your Yonsei Roundtable will be exploring the years within America's concentration camps following the exclusion orders. Episode 3 will not be hosted by Michelle and myself, however, it will be hosted by Johnny and Yoko. To learn more about the history behind today's episode, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising as a part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage Series. The Yonsei Podcast is made by Hiro Deza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wisely with theme music by Michelle Heckert. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei.